0: Hey, good morning. Class is about to begin and my own wife is back there still talking. But I'll give her a pass. I'm a kind and gentle teacher. Well, it's going to be fun to have Sunday school class again. Together like this, in a more traditional style, although I really enjoyed our Puritan study, and I think most of you did. I heard a lot of good feedback from that. helps us to reset I think recenter learning from them and how they studied the Word, how they looked at the Word of God, I think is such a great reminder for all of us. how they approached it and applied it, um, putting that the the onus on the individual to to hear his words and then do it. I think that is. So beneficial to us. But it'll be nice to get back into the Word together, intimately with us as a church this morning, and we're going to start this series in Philippians. Before we do, let me start with prayer and then we'll jump right into it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. We glorify you. You are alone worthy of our praise, just you, highly exalted, just and right, and almighty and powerful. And as we look at a letter like this, a short letter that is is uh, so personal from Paul to the church at Philippi, people he loved and cared about, people that he had a relationship with and visited multiple times, and people that cared about him and showed that and expressed their love back to him. And we can see this unity of the faith and the commonness even amongst Jews and Gentiles, uh, and, and the, the connecting between the two of them that happens because of the gospel, because of you, because of what you've done. And it shows the incredible power of the gospel, but the ability to love one another as, as your son loved us. And I pray that uh, as we study this and we take the next several weeks to look at this and and we, we go verse to verse and, and we see all of the, the goodness of your word, I pray that we can also understand that it's more than just a letter that was 2,000 years old to a, a group of people who no longer exist, but that these are eternal words for us. That this has, has transferred through time and space and has come to us here in 2022, and there is so much for us to learn and to do that you're going to teach us through your word in the next several weeks. So we thank you for that, and we praise you already for it. We love you, and I pray that you'll be with us as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Philippians, we are only going to cover two verses today. So that is not going to be uh, the focus. We're going to, I'm going to introduce this. We're going to be in Scripture a lot, but we're only going to hit a couple verses in Philippians, and then we'll, we'll kind of take off from there. But before I get started, I realized that I had not made the announcement that my oldest son is engaged to be married. So in case you didn't realize that, he is engaged to be married, so we'll probably have it in our garage. I am a Christian school teacher, you know, so no, it won't, won't be quite that simple. But uh, anyway, so congratulate him if you see him. He is, um, I don't think they've quite set a date yet, but he is engaged, so that's a blessing. That's fantastic. Anyway, let's jump into Philippians a little bit. This is going to be a fun study. This is a unique book. This honestly is a very unique book, and it's unique in many ways, as we'll unpack as we go through. And today we're just going to kind of see where where it comes from. What's the origins of it? What's the origins of the city of Philippi itself? Paul's interaction with these people, um, how he writes to them, his relationship with them that makes it so unique, and because of that you're going to have a a letter that is kind of stands alone in part to many of his other epistles, just simply because of that relationship and the uniqueness of it. Uh, Having said that, there is a variety of things that we can see in it as well. So here's what we're going to try to do today a little bit, just briefly going through this. Number one, who was it written to? And we'll establish this church at Philippi, what that is, what time and space this was. Who authored it? Of course, the Apostle Paul is is really, almost unarguably, the author of this. Uh, There are some critics out there who will, like, they always love to stir the pot about things, but it's almost unanimous in this regard. Where it was written, and there's a little debate, but not much on that, when, and then the overall theme. So we'll kind of look at some of these things today, trying to give us a, a good setup for this study which I'm, very, I'm much looking forward to as a teacher and as a student myself. As you know, I'm, I'm not going to teach this exclusively. Zach Seaton is, is going to teach this with me. And I think there is a benefit to doing it that way in that you're not just hearing from the same person over and over and over again. You have different takes, different angles, same inspired word. And I think if you look at that, it's almost kind of like the Gospels. You know, all of them inspired. We put this together, but different perspectives uh, and, of course, the foundation being Christ. So I think that's going to be, be unique about this study, and I'm looking forward to doing that as being a, a a teacher and a student. And you've heard me say this and other teachers as well. You can learn in no greater way than to prepare to teach. It, is, it makes you a, a, a student. To the highest degree, because you have to prepare yourself, so I'm looking forward to it from that perspective as well so let 's start with the city, the city of Philippi. Here is some of the very basics of about this particular city. This was is more accurately should be called the city of philip that 's really what that means. Philippi is just a shortened version of the city of philip and it 's named after Philip the Second of Macedonia. You probably know who that is that 's the father of Alexander the Great um, so we think of Alexander the Great and we're thinking, you know, of, of what God used him for to, to really establish the Greek language and to make that Koine Greek so uh, prolific throughout the, the Roman world as we go forward. And so we oftentimes think of how God providentially used him. But it's kind of interesting when you, on a very subtle side note, to think this city of Philippi, which became so essential. For us, I think of, my wife just told me this morning, it's one of her favorite books, which I didn't realize that. I guess I should know my wife a little bit better. She mentioned it to me. And I said, but just think about God uses somebody to establish a city in a totally pagan way, and yet becomes a a cornerstone in Paul's Paul's ministry, but in his relationships that we can learn from. I just think it's kind of a subtle thing how God uses something in, in massive human history And then uses it for his own glory. But somewhere around the fourth century BC, so Philippi became part of the Roman province of Macedonia at that point, somewhere around around the second century BC. And it will really, and this is kind of important as we go forward in the study, second to the last point, if you're kind of following along, that it became a small Rome. Okay, and and by that what I mean is it's it's kind of they they took on some of the, the characteristics. They took a lot of pride in being a Roman colony. They took a lot of pride in being citizens of Rome. So that's, that's going to be a big thing going forward when we consider that and what that means. And of course, following the Battle of Philippi in uh, 42 BC, we see that happening. So they're really solidified as being part of the Roman Empire. Going forward on this, their pride in that, Paul is going to use So you're going to hear the terminology "citizen" here more than in other places. Now Paul makes reference to that in Ephesians two as well, but it's in a slightly different way um, in Ephesians chapter two. And and when when we look at that, we'll kind of when we get to that part, we'll look at Ephesians two as well. But our citizenship being in heaven, we're very familiar with that, and and we're very comfortable with that. As a matter of fact, it's part of the greatest hope that we have. It's it's one of those things when we consider. Several weeks ago, when I talked about, and Pastor just recently talked about being heirs or co heirs, sons of God, children of God. Our understanding of that, that understanding of that, some of it comes from this letter. The idea that we are not citizens of this place. Our pride shouldn't be in our, our, and now we need to not think Rome, we need to think United States of America. Our pride shouldn't just exclusively be in our country, but in our eternal home. And as a matter of fact, I would say, instead of, uh, it should be in our eternal home. So that's a big theme that you're going to see through this. They had a small population of Jews as well. And we're going to see that later on. I'm not going to spend too much time on it in this very moment. But when we get to Acts 16, we need to come back to this. We'll spend some time there today. You're going to see that there's some evidence that there were some Jews there. But this was a very Gentile, Roman-type colony uh, when Paul got there. And I think even 10 years later when he writes this letter. Um, so it's, it's also going to have some such pride in their Roman heritage and the Roman citizenship that some people, when Paul gets there, have a big problem with him because his message is, generally speaking, anti-Roman. And you got to keep in mind now, at this point in time in Philippi, in the Roman world, it was right around the time Paul got there that Claudius had, had issued this edict that Jews be expelled from Rome and the persecution of Jews, and there were some of them here, had already begun. We'd already, we were already seeing some of this, um, which we've talked about before, if you recall, when we went through the, uh, the churches of Revelation, some of this um, emperor worship beginning to happen. Now, there were multiple gods. There were, they embraced many of those Greek gods, and so there was all types of different types of worship. But the concept that there is one true God and only his son is where salvation is found, that's going to kind of raise some eyebrows in this particular colony. So just kind of keep this in mind. Here's another piece to this as we go forward and we look at Acts and the establishment of it in Acts 16, is that when we see Paul and Silas uh, imprisoned, and, and we're going to see that here in just a moment, it's, there's four men that are there. So it's Paul, it's Silas, it's Timothy, and it's Luke. So you're going to see kind of this anti-Semitism being in there because you've only got two guys that get get arrested. And there were four guys that were there. And there were two guys that were definitively Jewish. And the other two probably weren't. And so you you start to get an idea of what's going on in that city at that time. Just kind of giving you a side note on that. Um, Also, in this particular city and in a a Roman province like this that, that was so well established with the Roman government it was really against law at, at times, if they felt like enforcing it, and you'll see how this plays out, to really begin to try to convert people to another religion that was outside of what the Roman government had established as, as acceptable. So we're going to see some of this play into into, into this whole development of the, the Philippian church. So kind of give you a background on that, that's kind of what we're looking at, that's what we're going to be looking at as we go forward. I want to show you a map here. I don't know if you can see that real well. Fortunately, with our new projectors, you can. Just to give you an idea where this sits on the map, Philippi is right there. little itty-bitty spot right here. So Paul spends some, most of his time down here in his first missionary journey. This is his second missionary journey to give you a time understanding of this. And now you got to go way back when we were in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, you had the Jerusalem council. You had... Paul and Barnabas split after this and had a a disagreement, a very sharp disagreement. Pastor Kevin and I were talking about this with others, and he said the Greek word there is a very strong (laughs) disagreement. They eventually, of course, resolve. John, Mark, uh, and Paul will resolve. But that was because of him that Barnabas and he split. And this is now his second missionary journey where he's going with Silas. And so we're going to see them come through here we're also going to see that God tells him not to stay there or go into Bithynia in a moment, but this is where he's headed. So this is going to be his first spot, his first stop in this particular region. So I just wanted to show you a few pictures from the archaeological dig here. This is the theater telling us some things about this, that this was a rich city, this wealthy city. This was successful, very Roman. And so they had a theater. They, anytime you see something like this, you know that if there's time for... For extracurriculars, that means that this is not just a working man's city, that there, is, there are other things that they do with their resources. So this just kind of gives you an idea of what they've seen here. Some of these other things are important to what we're going to talk about. The forum in particular, as we go forward, some speculate, and I've looked at, at multiple different resources for this. <clears throat> so I wanted to see if I could get a solidified answer for it. But most of them come to the conclusion that this is potentially where Paul and Silas, so it's kind of funny to look at something like this, right? I've never been there, but to, to, and it's funny to see a modern road just driving right by it, right through this ancient city. This is potentially where Paul and Silas were put on trial and beaten, right in here. And they're saying it's somewhere in this spot because they think that's where the, the Bema seat was, the seat of judgment was just kind of fascinating. It's always interesting to kind of look back, and this is a fairly recent picture of the archaeological dig there at Philippi. So it gives you an idea here. This is the basilica. Now we're going a little bit further ahead. This is the largest early Christian church ever excavated, they say. Now this is around the 5th century, Um, so this is much later than what we're going to be talking about. What it does tell us is that What Paul establishes, and let's just say it, Christ establishes through Paul in around 49, and then extending all the way up to the 60s when he writes this letter to them, it continues on. The faithfulness of God continues in this city that was very pagan to begin with, that was very commercial to begin with, was very focused on money and things and worldly happiness, and Roman continues on and eventually establishing a a large church here. So this is part of those ruins of that particular church. Very interesting to kind of see that as well. And then here's one more, just this is the last one. I don't want to bore you with this stuff, but I just think it's kind of interesting. They found here, and this is a 7th century church, this particular octagon complex. Very large church, one of the largest early Christian church that they've found. But what's kind of cool about this one, is a, and I didn't couldn't find a picture of it because I don't think that they've preserved it over time. But when they first got there, and this is very early, they were able to, and it was somewhere under here, so we can't see it. They've got this covered, but on the floor, there was a uh, in the mosaic floor, there is a, a writing or an inscription about the Apostle Paul that, that dates back to the third century. So it, it's just fascinating that there's that establishment there that you hear these names, Arche, archaeology. And, and I can say this confidently, teaching Bible this long and history this long, it never, ever discredits the Word of God. It never does. Now, that shouldn't surprise you and I. It, it, never, it never will, because we know that this is the absolute truth. And when they find something, and, and when they come out with something, oh, look, this discredits the Bible. Every single time, you know what happens over, over the, the, the decades that they continue to study it? Oh, we were wrong about that. Actually, the Bible was right. It was right all along. And this is just yet another example of this. I, I saw some critics talking about Philippi and how you know, we've put it such a focus on it being a Christian area and how what an establishment it was. And they want to kind of repaint that picture that, oh, Christianity really didn't hold that very, very long. It didn't, really, it didn't really make the impact that we, we, we talk about. These ruins wouldn't be here if it didn't. Hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later. And let's just be honest, we wouldn't be here either if the church (laughs) hadn't continued on and the Great Commission hadn't been fulfilled. So anyway, don't want to spend too much time on that, but very interesting stuff to look at. Archaeology always backs up the Word of God, always does. All right, the author. Who is he? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this either because I don't think anyone here is going to debate that the Apostle Paul is the author. Why will we not debate it? Because it says the Apostle Paul wrote this right at the beginning of the book. So we see it immediately, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He, he talks about Timothy because of the relationship. He mentions Timothy again several, a couple chapters later we'll see here. But this is pretty unanimous. There, there's really not much debate. I could spend some time giving you some of these slides about, well, some people think it was, there's really no reason. There's almost no debate. He identifies himself. Nothing doctrinally in this particular letter is contradictory to anything that Paul has written anywhere else. As a matter of fact, it amplifies it, strengthens it, and repeats it. As a matter of fact, we have an incredible, what we call the Christ hymn in here in Philippians 2, which I'm certain you're familiar with, that is is one of the more beautiful examples of who our Savior is from his divinity to his humility to his perfection, his crucifixion, and his exaltation. It's beautiful, and it's absolutely Pauline, no doubt about it. So when we look at those sorts of things, there's really no reason to debate this. Uh, Timothy, which just strengthens this, Philippians 2 he mentions him again, speaking of Timothy, talking about the relationship of going back and forth, he speaks of a delegation and, and, a, and money coming from the Philippian church, it's so personal, there's really nothing in this that would, that would lend itself for someone being a forger, there's nothing in it that would make us think that that would ever happen there's no motivation for that so I think that when we're talking about who wrote this, it's Paul. And, and even in the style of writing, it's Paul. There's no doubt that it's Paul. Okay, let's keep going on this. Philippi was the first town in Macedonia that Paul came to. This is the first one that, he's, that he, he and these what we're going to see, three other men with him, establish a church in. This is the first place on this second missionary journey in which Paul sets down the roots of Christianity where he establishes something that these people had not heard before. And so we're talking around 4950 AD. This is the first time he comes here. Most theologians think he comes back twice. Uh, we see this in 2 Corinthians, there's a reference to it. Acts chapter 20 makes a reference to a third visit. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 6, there's a third visit. But in this first visit, where we see him kind of first interacting with somebody is with a woman. Now, before we get to this and this particular woman who I think becomes a leader in this church, I think that eventually the church is, is actually meeting in her home more than likely. We'll talk about her in a moment. It's kind of fascinating how he got here in the first place. So why don't you turn to Acts chapter 16 with me, and let's take a look at this. And really, I look at this as God's providence. And we're going to take some lessons from this this morning as we go through this kind of in the midst of kind of establishing this I think there's some something to be learned here about who's in control. And I think we always need to be reminded about who's in control. I certainly do. And by the way, it's not me. I'm not in control. Acts chapter 16. Let's take a look at God's providence. So we're going to start with 6 verses or 6 through 10 to establish this. This is the Macedonian call. So at this point, remember Paul and Barnabas have separated. This is after the Jerusalem Council. That's chapter 15. Chapter 16, he picks up Timothy. Paul and Silas are there. He's going to establish when Luke is writing the book of Acts, he's going to start using the word we. So now we've got Luke in there. He's including himself. At first, though, it's they. Okay. So when we're looking at verse 6, Luke's probably not there. We'll see a we later on, but here's what it says. Let me read it through, and then we'll talk about this and just kind of how fascinating it is. And this has always been intriguing to me, I'll be honest. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Right away, that's fascinating to me. But let me keep reading. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared in Paul to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, we, there's, there's Luke, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us us to preach the gospel to them. Crazy stuff here. This is pretty fascinating. Now, I'll be honest, we all often talk about God's leading and God's call and, but I have never been told, you cannot go there in a verbal, visual, Holy Spirit said you can't go there. I've had doors closed, no doubt about it. There's been moments where I know, okay, he's, that's clearly not going to happen now. God's providence there. But this is supernatural here. This is an interaction that happens with Paul and the Holy Spirit and the Lord himself that is very, very interesting to me. He, it says, forbade me to, to speak the word in Asia. Now, it it seems controversial because we know very clearly, John 3, 16, probably the first verse you ever memorized, that God so loved the world, didn't he? He does. He does love the world. But in his providence, timing is everything. Even in the life of Christ, did we not see that? Weren't there times where Christ healed someone and he said, don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody who I am just yet. And it isn't because he wasn't the Messiah or he wasn't sure if he was the Messiah. He knew... But timing, God's providence. I think when we look at something like this, the idea that God would stop them from going to a place helps us a little bit, right? Because we can't save anyone ourselves. We can't be everywhere to be part of the process in which God makes his appeal through us. You can't be in every country, every state, in every situation. God has people planned for that. God has his people everywhere. God has you doing what he wants you to do right here and there are times where he says, "Oh, I know you thought you were going there. I've got somebody else for that. You're going to go this direction." I think that's what we're looking at here. It isn't God saying, "I'm not interested in the people of Asia anymore." Yeah, I'm not saving them. We know that's not true. We know clearly from scripture that that's not true. And he had already gone through some of those regions in Asia already. So Asia Minor already. So really not an issue. But when we look at this, it's kind of fascinating. And then we see it doubling down. Look at verse 7 again. they had come up to Mysia. They attempted to go to Bithynia. So I don't know if it was he heard it and he's like, that can't be. I'm going to try to go anyway. I'm not sure. Could be. They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. I, I don't know how you read this. I've looked at so many commentaries to try to get an idea of this. Did he physically stop them? It's possible. They physically got stopped from going to a place. It could be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's a possibility, too. We do know that the Apostle Paul, uh, the the way we read Galatians, is that he probably heard directly from the Lord and was instructed directly from the Lord. When he references that he didn't hear this from any apostle, that he got it directly from the Lord. Even when we think of some of the mysteries of the the New Testament, kind of of considering the church, uh, the rapture, I got this directly from the Lord, he says. This came as a word directly from the Lord. It's possible it's a verbal thing. It could be physical. Wouldn't let them go. So just a breakdown of this. The second missionary journey, he wouldn't allow, the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them to go. This is modern day Turkey, but they attempt to go and they were physically stopped from going. So what is this? This is, this is the map. Just to, we're back to that same map again or similar map to give you this missionary journey. This is the area he was in right around here. And keep in mind, there are Christian. look at this, Philadelphia, Ephesus, these are Thyatira. There are churches here, but he doesn't want them to stay here, and he doesn't want them to go up here. This is the idea. He's going to go this way. God said, no, I need you to go this way. That's where I want you to go. Now, some people speculate that maybe Peter was going to go in that direction. Maybe he did go in that direction. Certainly somebody's going to go in that direction. But God is calling him to go a different place. So, is this a physical thing? Why is this? Here's some possibilities. It's uncertain why God didn't allow them. These are just my thoughts. Okay, this is not Scripture, so this may not be true at all. But I'm just throwing a spitball in here. Why? And uh, I, don't, I don't know, but this is, it could be that it was too dangerous for Paul. Maybe that's it. now We know he went through a lot of danger and a lot of trouble. I'm not a big fan of this particular thought. He, he's not really afraid of danger. He was stoned near to death and went right back into the city he got stoned in. He's not too afraid of pain and suffering. He's a tough guy. Uh, He came close to death many times, so I'm not so certain that's it. But maybe God said, no, it's way too dangerous there, and I need you to keep, keep you alive for a while. It's possible the timing wasn't right, as I mentioned. It just wasn't part of his will at the moment. God's sovereign will goes beyond our understanding. Paul didn't have to know why. You just can't go. And you don't have to know why either. God's going to direct your path. I tell my students this all of the time. It's not your job to necessarily understand the motivation for everything that God does and why he does it. Now, his motivation for why he does it is his, his, his love for you and his will to be accomplished. That much I can tell you. But the intricacies of that, that, that's our trust in him. We need to trust him on this. He may have wanted to bring the gospel message elsewhere for the sake of the elect. This could be a sovereign election issue. We have the man of Macedonia specifically mentioned in this particular vision. We know specifically he gets to We're going to see this with Lydia, that she was already someone who was seeking after the Lord, but didn't understand, did not get it. And so you have people who are seeking for the truth. They're seeking this one true God, and he can be found by them. But how can they be saved? Well, Romans 10, somebody's got to go. And so Paul has to go. And I think that may be the timing of this. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Quoting from Romans 10. He may have had someone else in mind, as I mentioned. Could have been Peter. So there's all these likelihoods. I don't know, but it's kind of cool to look at this. God said, no, you're not going here. You're going here. So we go back to, you know, this being named after Philip II, this being a Roman colony, this coming after a great battle of Philippi, and all of these worldly reasons why the city's established. Yeah, no, that's not why. It's so that people can hear the word of God and his perfect providence. You're going to go here and you're going to preach the gospel. You can't help but to apply this to your own life. In Plainfield, Indiana, why are you here? I think about that all the time. I didn't grow up here. Some of you didn't grow up here. How did I get here? Well, I know how I got here. God's providence got me here. Why did we walk through here? Mindy was driving by to go to Target. Let's try that church. And here we sit, right? here I stand. And, and, and worshiping with you and learning from you and, and fellowshipping with you. God's providence. Here I stand teaching you and I didn't grow up in this town. Not a Hoosier or a Boilermaker. I'm an Illini and I'm still here. Sorry, Pastor, I had to mention the Illini this morning just one time in case you were wondering. All right, but back to this. This is God's providence. Beautiful providence and this is exactly what we should see. All right, let's talk about Lydia. This is also a very, very cool story. i got to pick up my pace, but I will do it. This is a very cool account. Hate to, I always get on people when they say story. This is no story. This is a historical account of what happened. So they did what God said. Physically, you can't go there. You're going to go there. He listened to this Macedonian call. There are people there that need to be saved, and I'm going to save them, but you've got to preach the gospel. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage To Samothrace, and following that day in Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. I made mention of that earlier. We remained in this city some days, and on Sabbath we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman, who the women who had come together. So let me just pause on that one for just a moment. Here's what we see. They're going to the river where they supposed that people were worshiping. The reason they would suppose this is based on how things worked with establishing a synagogue. If if this were a well established Jewish community, and there were and I'll put this slide up, and there were ten God fearing Jewish men who were in the town, they would have established a synagogue. It's clearly telling us that hadn't happened. And they're meeting at the river. So in cases like this, this is the tradition, this is what we hear, that those who wish to worship would find an open air near a river and gather together and worship there. That's what they would do. And that's what we find happening here. And so this is an example of how it's a Jew, Gentile-type city and not a lot of Jewish people there. And this, again, could go back to the edict of Claudius, that 49 edict, that could be having something to do with that. Maybe Jewish people were, uh, were not in this area to begin with. It's hard to say. But anyway, this is where we find this encounter with Lydia. So he's there. Let's get back to the text, verse 14. And so they came together, and they're worshiping the Lord. Well, before I jump into this, you might think, well, how do they know about the one true God? Well, keep in mind, Romans 1 tells us we all should know, for one when we look at creation. That, that's number one. We should know that. But I think the, the idea of the Jewish God is not unheard of for people to know about. I want you to think back, and this is going way back, because it's been a long time since that's been preached here, and in, in when, when we think of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman soldier. He's a leader of Roman soldiers. He's from Italy. He's not Jewish at all, but he knew about the one true God, worshipped him, but didn't know about Jesus, didn't know about the Messiah. They were known. The God of the Bible was known to many people, not everyone. We're going to find that that's not true everywhere, but I think that's what we see here. There was some influence they had. They knew about the one true God. This particular woman certainly did, but she didn't know enough to be saved yet. She didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is also a very interesting passage when it comes to election as well. But verse 14 One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Doesn't say she was a believer in Jesus. Doesn't say she was a follower of the way. Doesn't say she was a Christian. Doesn't say she loved Jesus. Says she worshiper of God. She knew there was one true God. She wanted to know more. Notice what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. To, To pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Well, what was going to be said by Paul? The gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's what saves people. We're saved by faith in Christ and him alone. The, the story of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, his return, the whole thing, Paul's certainly talking about that, and the, the need for the sinner to repent and believe. I'm certain that's what she's heard. But even hearing that, without the Lord opening your heart, raising the veil, dropping the scales, helping you, drawing you to himself, we're not going to believe that. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I kind of skipped this, but real quickly, we'll get back to Lydia for a moment. Who she was is possibly a very rich woman because dealing with this sort of material, this purple dye cloth, this was an expensive thing, and her clientele were probably rich people, So probably of the royal class even. So most people assume that she was a wealthy woman um, that had... Quite a bit of success. We also assume she did not have a husband um, because we don't have any mention of him. And she is working herself, which would have been unusual for a woman who was married at the time. So very possible. But back to this, my point with Lydia. So much like Cornelius, she worshiped the Lord but didn't understand. This is another evidence of the Lord bringing the gospel to somebody who wants to hear it. This is an argument that that I hear from, it's not an argument, it's a question that teenagers ask me a lot. How do people who are in these third world countries and in some tribe, how can they ever hear? I said, listen, anybody that, if there is somebody who sees creation, sees the, the things that are around them, this is not an accident. And they, they know there's one true God and they cry out to him, a missionary's gonna get there. If they want to know, it, God doesn't, doesn't just leave people to nothing. If, if they are one of his, he doesn't lose any. The gospel's gonna get to them. If they're seeking, there's nobody who seeks out the Lord that God isn't drawing to himself. That just doesn't happen. So when we think of this, think down to this last point, this implies here that God opening her heart to this is this idea of, remember, what, is, what does Jesus say in John 6? No one can come to me unless the Father grants it. No one can come to me unless the Father is drawing me, drawing them. What does he say to Peter in Matthew 16? You didn't get that on your own, Simon. That came from above. That came from the Father. So we know very clearly we can see that there is a God, and when we seek him, he's drawing us. They go together. So if somebody's truly seeking the Lord, it's because he's drawing them to himself. And if he's drawing him, them to himself, they're going to hear the gospel. That, that's just the reality. And this is a miraculous event where that takes place. So let's get back to the text. Verse 15. I'm going way too slow. After she was baptized and her household as well, so she believed that's what that means she put her faith in Christ she urged us saying if the, if you have judged me to be faithful to the lord come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us and my guess is she had a pretty nice house so this wasn't too tough an argument for him to give into sure we'll stay with you i'm tired of staying out in these tents i'm making is probably what he's saying so she puts her faith in Christ and this is the first establishment right here that's the beginning of the church right there one woman Maybe there were a group of women, her entire household, this is probably her servants, maybe family members extended, that hear the gospel, put their faith in Christ. There's your establishment of the Philippian church right there. Just a few people, faithful people who wanted to hear the gospel, God drawing them to himself, miraculously bringing a guy who's going to teach them the gospel, saying, i got people there that you're going you're to tell the gospel to. I've got people there that are going to get saved. And boom, there it is. There's the church at Philippi right there. The next piece I'm going to have to zip through. But the Philippian jailer tells us a little bit about what's going on in the culture there. You know something about 16 through 40. And here's what it says. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. This is Pythona, spirit of the Python. This has to do with uh, the oracle of Delphi. There's all kinds of reasons why Paul would use that particular word. But she was demon-possessed and could kind of, she's a medium. The demons would fool her, tell about things that were going on in family members' lives, just like we see the charlatans doing today that are talking to demons and think they're talking to your great aunt who passed away. That's not what's going on, but there's demon possession here. And you know the story. i got to zip through this. She annoyed Paul by saying the truth about Paul. I love this part of it, and i got to read this part. She was crying out to Paul and the other men, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation.'" true but she did this constantly for days and it annoyed paul enough so much so that he turned around and extracted the demon from her now i don't want to get into this but be careful about thinking that you have the right to do this to you know exercise a demon the sons of Skeva try this and a few chapters later they thought this was pretty impressive and the the demon said to these two boys the sons of Skeva, paul we know and we're real familiar with jesus but who are you And then they strip them naked, beat them up, and send them out the door. So be careful if you think you're going to start extracting demons from people. We're never given that instruction. The apostles do it, but we're not really called to do it. So just a side note on this. Anyway, they extract this demon. She no longer has the power of divination, the python. And, of course, that gets her owners pretty upset because they were making a lot of money. And what happens then is now suddenly they're very offended with their message because it's contrary to the Roman colony and the roman idea of citizenship and so here's what we see the truth about the the salvation message is at the paramount center of all of this and what she's saying is going to is going to be true but it's also going to kind of rile up the 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 city and the town and the in the area and it's kind of fascinating that these demons are still subjected to the lord but let's move on so here's what happens with the conversion we got to skip to this because i'm out of time We know what happens. They are put in prison. They're beaten. I showed you the area in which that happened. They're beaten and put in prison. The earthquake happens. This incredible event takes place. And what were Paul and Silas doing all night long? You know this account. What were they doing all night long? Praying, singing hymns, and songs. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you're going to see this as a theme throughout Philippians. Contentment and joy no matter your circumstances. Paul is one of the greatest examples of this. And it's, it starts, the Philippian church that he encourages with these words, he started the church this way. By being beaten to a pulp, chained to the floor, singing songs that certainly had theology all throughout them with the gospel. Because when it all happened and the, the earthquake took place and the chains came off, the first question that we see after he realized the jailer asks, after he sees that everybody stayed, because the prisoners probably were, were, were amazed at the gospel message too, everybody stayed is, what do I got to do to be saved? He wouldn't have asked that question if they hadn't been singing and praying it all night long. So you think about the impact you can have about being the sort of example you should be in the, in the face of difficulty and pain and suffering. That's when people are going to pay attention. When you're going through it, and you're still proclaiming the name of the Lord. When you're going through the hardest time of your life, and you're singing songs, and you've got joy, and you tell people about your hope, that you're ready to give a defense for the hope that you have in you. And they see that when things are hard. That makes an impact. It made an impact on him. It ends up making an impact on his family. And the church is already expanding in just a few days. And it's unlikely people. I want you to think about the power of the gospel. Potentially, you've got this slave girl who maybe comes to know Christ after this. We don't know that for sure, but it would be a pretty good possibility. You've got Lydia, a single woman, maybe a widow, we don't know, rich, successful, calling out to the Lord and God calling, and God calling her to himself. She gets saved. Her whole household. You've got a Philippian jailer, totally Roman, wanted to kill himself that night. Maybe the, maybe the other prisoners that were there, all in just a few days. That's the impact of the gospel, and faithful men who are willing to, to go through hard things. So we see that, and, and I think it's a great establishment of this particular, this particular letter. Let me hustle through this in the next couple minutes to kind of set us up for the next week. That's kind of the heart of what we see here. This is the heart of this particular letter. It's a prison letter, probably written around 60 to 62 There's a little debate on this. Some people think he was writing this from another jail cell. I highly doubt it. I think that this is the right interpretation of this, that this is certainly at this time that he was in Rome, not Caesarea. But But we have references to the church at Philippi here, Caesar's household, uh, the whole uh, uh, um, praetorian guard, certainly the private bodyguard of the emperor. This would all have been at Rome. There's very little debate here. The other uh, uh, epistles that were written, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, all probably around the same imprisonment, more than likely. What do we see here? Why does Paul write this? Just very quickly, the reason he's writing this to this Philippian church, we've got several reasons. He wanted to thank them for the financial gift. He wanted to explain why one of theirs that they sent to him to give him financial help and support why he was sending them back uh, and he was sick. And that's part of the reason why he wanted to explain that. Sick even to the point of death. We'll get to that in chapter 4 a little later on. Inform them about what was happening in Rome. Another explanation why this was probably a Roman letter in, Roman, in, in the Roman prison, challenging them to be unified, warning them about false teachers, encouraging them to have joy and contentment. All of these are reasons why he is doing this. And this is all part of the themes that we see very quickly. See, these are some of the themes that we're going to see as we go through this in the next several weeks. Just take a look at some of this beautiful stuff and from chapters one through four. I think the unique relationship to the Philippian church is going to be evident everywhere we go. How intimate it was with them. This, I mentioned this earlier, this Christ hymn about who our Savior is. Boy, you can just resonate in that passage. I've used it in a number of different ways in different sermons and lessons about who our Savior is. The suffering and then joy mindset, the unity that comes together. You can see this. The contentment that comes off of that. And we see that in a few different chapters. The, he gives an autobiography of himself the idea of justification by faith is mentioned here as well. The pursuit of Christ's likeness, the warning against false teachers, just a rich book that is very positive. He doesn't come down on them like he does some other churches. We, mentioned, we were talking about this earlier today, um, the, the elders and I. Very different type of book, different type of letter in, in many ways. And then the church itself is established. Now I want to skip to the end. The idea of the church is unique. This this idea of the church in Philippians 1 1 and 1 2. This is a unique situation. We have Jesus mentioning, mentioned here as the center, the leader, the cornerstone, the foundation. You've got saints, that's us. You've got overseers and elders, and you have deacons mentioned. Uniquely, this is the very very first time we see this. Uniquely, it's the only time we see it in this context. Where our structure for a church is established here. And so we know what this is and what this looks like. But here's some of the ideas of what we see in Scripture. I, I know we don't have time, but this is a good take a picture of it, if you feel like it. It also can be in, it'll be on the website, so you can see these, these slides. But this gives us an idea of why we're here, what we do. I wish I had time to, un, to unpack all of these, but this is what we see in Scripture and what Paul establishes, even in Philippians, you'll notice, and a few of these passages are from Philippians, of why we come here. What what church is for? It's a a great establishment, and and I just took some time to kind of look through some of the reasons why we do what we do. Sometimes we come here almost habitually, but do you you remember why you're coming here? Do you remember why we're interacting with one another? Anyway, he establishes this, that it's to a specific church. And then this greeting. You might say, I've seen this greeting before. Philippians 1-2, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds awful familiar. It's real familiar. Let me just take a couple minutes and show you how familiar. You think, yeah, that's just one slide where he says the exact same thing. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, grace, peace, grace, peace. That's not all. Ephesians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. He seems to like this greeting. I, I, I don't know if you noticed, think that's just two slides. That's nothing. No, here's the third one. First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, grace and peace, grace and peace. Now you're saying, ah, but he throws in mercy in first and second Timothy. Yes, he wanted to inform and encourage Timothy with mercy. He was going through it, if you know, if you remember anything about that. He was having a hard time, and so was Paul. So he really wanted mercy. But yes, grace and peace, grace and peace. He loves this. So, really quick. Why grace and peace? And I want to end with this. Why grace? Well, because isn't it what it's all about for you and me? The unmerited favor that makes you a child of God. It wasn't you. It was him. The reminder at the beginning of this letter and all of the letters, don't you dare read this or take this and think this is somehow because of you. Grace has been bestowed upon you. Have we not seen that with Lydia? Have we not seen that with the, the Philippian jailer? Have we not seen that with that, that poor young slave girl? That the grace of God got bestowed on them. God drew them to himself, the gospel got to them, and boom, they're saved. Grace, the idea of justification, redemption, sanctification, regeneration, it's all about the Lord. And as he writes these letters, all of them that we saw, grace is just oozing from it. That's why. That's why we see that. Okay, so when we understand this, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, but our God changed things for us. By grace we've been saved. And then why peace? Well, because that's the result of it. You're no longer an enemy of the Lord. You're not, an, you're not at enmity with him anymore. You were once lost, dead, and against him, a son of the devil, literally, son and daughter of the devil, and he's the prince of peace. He's made peace with you. You've made peace with him, and because of that, you have eternal peace. Man, when you start looking at letters like that, why does he do this? Because he wants to remind you who you are and what's going to happen in your life if you've surrendered your life to Christ. An incredible thing. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for that whirlwind of an introduction. I thank you for Zach's willingness to teach this as well, looking forward to his insights on this and how you're going to teach him to teach us. We thank you for the richness of this book, the uniqueness of this book, the faithfulness of the people in Philippi, the faithfulness of these four men who established this church, But we thank you because you're the cornerstone of it. You're the cornerstone of their church and ours. I thank you that that you've given us the opportunity to study your word, that it has been preserved all these years miraculously so that we can see it today, apply it to our lives today, and be the same kind of ambassadors that these people were back then. I pray that we do this understanding you are the Prince of Peace and you are the author and perfecter of our faith Thanks be to your grace. It wouldn't be anything, we wouldn't be anything without that. We love you. Be with us in this second hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.